Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Last year was the 10th hottest on record globally, and Nashville had the eighth highest average temperature. A warmer atmosphere means more extreme weather, but the city is working on measures that will not only help us adapt to climate change, but also reduce our impact on the planet. Will it be enough? And will we get there in time? That's coming up later this hour. But first, transgender patients at Vanderbilt University Medical Center were notified last week that the Tennessee Attorney General had requested and received non-redacted copies of their medical records. It's part of an investigation into VUMC's gender-affirming care clinic. WPLN's Mariana Bacayao has been following the story and joins me now. Mariana, thanks for being here. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So why is the Attorney General's office investigating Vanderbilt's transgender clinic? So this case revolves around the health insurance plan for state employees, which doesn't cover any sort of gender affirming care. This is actually the subject of a recent lawsuit filed by two state employees, one former and one current, who say that policy amounts to discrimination because it covers hormone therapy for cisgender employees, you know, cis women who may be going through menopause, but not for transgender employees. That means that none of Vanderbilt's gender-affirming care services are covered. But the AG's office alleges that a doctor there had found a way around the restriction and billed the state's health insurance anyway. What kind of information did the AG ask for? Well, it's interesting. Mm. Attorney General Jonathan Scrimetti began asking for documents related to this case late last year. And his latest request in March asked for not only the information of trans patients on the state's health insurance plan, but the names of people who had been referred to the clinic, the names of doctors who had referred them, and all of the communication to and from the email for VUMC's general LGBTQ health program, so not specific to gender-affirming care. Patients are able to ask for a copy of what the state was given about them. I've spoken to some patients who are trying to get a hold of that information. But so far, I haven't heard from anyone who has been successful. Okay, so if the AG got these files in March, why are people just hearing about it now? The timing is a little complicated. Uh, The UMC has been turning over records since December, actually. But at the start of this month, a copy of A.G. Skirmetti's requests were submitted as evidence in court. That's how I was able to access the request and read the details that was submitted in a lawsuit against a state law that will ban gender affirming care for minors. That's set to go into effect at the end of this week. How was Tennessee's A.G. able to get a hold of this information? I mean, don't health privacy laws like HIPAA prevent hospitals from sharing your information? Not exactly. Hmm. HIPAA makes a lot of exceptions for law enforcement and attorneys general. Scrimetti issued what's known as a civil investigative demand or CID. So this is not a subpoena, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for pushback or recourse from providers or patients. You know, in other non-HIPAA cases, a court or a judge might need to sign off on a request like this, and they would judge it based on how relevant the information is to the investigation at hand. But 
the AG doesn't have to go through a court. You talked to some of the people involved. What have you heard from some of the patients? They're terrified. Uh, Tennessee Republicans have used anti-trans laws to rally their base, and now a Tennessee Republican has access to their names, addresses, their dates of birth. Some are afraid their personal information could be used against them or that, you know, it could be used to shut down Vanderbilt's gender-affirming services. Here's Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa, a patient at VUMC. Nothing good has ever come out of an entity creating a list of a demographic of people. The state legislature here in Tennessee is creating conditions for burning flesh, and that terrifies me. And some no longer feel safe at Vanderbilt. A lot of people are asking, you know, what did VUMC do to protect their patients' records? Why didn't they notify patients earlier? Why didn't they fight harder to keep those files private or at least redact information? Well, why didn't they? We don't actually know that they didn't. A spokesperson for VUMC said they couldn't comment or clarify any of my questions along those lines. They stressed that legally they had to comply with the state. I spoke with Bryce Timmons, a civil rights lawyer who litigates health care claims. He says that if Vanderbilt had tried to fight this, it would have been an uphill battle. The law as written sort of presumes a certain level of good faith on the part of government actors. And I don't think that we're seeing that here with this administration in Tennessee. The attorney general's office says this investigation is centered around the provider, not patients, and that it holds their medical records in the strictest confidence as required by law. The AG's office also says patients aren't usually notified in cases like these, and they accuse Vanderbilt of trying to scare patients by telling them. But patients say they want to know, and they're going to be keeping a closer eye on the medical information from now on. I'm sure you'll be keeping a closer eye on this story as it develops. That I will. That is WPLN's Mariana Bacchiao. You can find the link to her story on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Mariana, thank you as always for your reporting. Of course. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll visit First Horizon Park, where actions to adapt to climate change are happening. And we'll learn what the city is doing to adjust. Are you seeing signs of climate change where you live or work? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Climate change is upon us, and human beings have to adapt. The way we live and the structures we build interrupt natural processes, including the way that rain cycles through the earth. Middle Tennessee is no stranger to heavy rains. Flooding is a danger we've experienced in the past. And as our city expands, it's something we need to prepare for as severe weather events become more frequent. One organization that's thinking about solutions is the Cumberland River Compact. We sent our producer, Magnolia McKay, out to First Horizon Park where the Nashville Sounds play ball to see one of these solutions in action. A crew of six workers in neon green shirts are hard at work, just outside the right field entrance. Now, when you hear garden, you might expect to see some kind of mound with landscaping. But here, the landscaping is in a big triangular ditch. 
which may sound kind of funny, but it serves a very specific purpose. A bioretention facility is a method for managing stormwater that falls in an urban area. Chris Hornsby is the field operations supervisor for the Cumberland River Compact, and bioretention facility is the technical term for this rain garden. It collects rain to soak into our soil, as opposed to just dumping it straight in the Cumberland River. It's a type of green infrastructure, which is opposed to gray infrastructure. So a gray infrastructure is culverts and pipes that run underneath the city, and their purpose is to get stormwater away from the place where it fell, usually away from houses and structures, as fast as possible. But the problem with this man-made gray infrastructure, it's a little too efficient. Then that rain gets into the streams much more quickly, causing flash flooding issues, um, carries a lot of pollution in, and that's not good for our drinking water source. That's where the rain garden comes in. The rain that falls on the stadium funnels into the garden from two inflow pipes. Then, say we get a really, really heavy rain, and it's more than this facility can handle. This is an overflow, outflow area. In the middle of the ditch is a big concrete storm drain about the size of a hot tub. The nice thing about that is that as it will take a long time for the water to reach that level, the sediment, chemicals, and other pollutants that are coming into the facility will have time to settle down to the bottom of the facility and infiltrate into the soil. So the water that does flow out to our tributaries will be more pure. But what does this have to do with climate change? It's really more of a local mitigation strategy. You could say that we're having more frequent, intense storms because of climate change. And cities with outdated gray infrastructure have trouble managing that storm water. So in a rapidly growing city like Nashville, where we're laying new slabs of concrete all the time. Not only is that bad for the waterways, it's also bad for the urban heat island effect. So it's going to make our cities hotter because this, could, this whole section could be paved. But at least on this patch of earth, there's plant life and exposed soil that lowers the temperature in the area and gives the earth a chance to soak up and filter the rain that falls on the stadium. To talk more about adapting to a changing climate, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Vasu Primlani is the Sustainability Project Manager for Metro Nashville's Department of General Services, and Millie Peterson is a rising high school junior that participated in the Nashville Youth Climate Summit. Vasu, Millie, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate you both being here. Now, Vasu, we just heard about at what well, we heard about the sound stadium, that's one way to manage some of the effects of climate change. But how are adaptation measures like this different from sustainability? Well, it's really part of sustainability. Sustainability, most people don't know, is a 360-degree um, effort. It's not just energy. It's not just solid waste. It's not just stormwater management. It's not just pollution prevention. It's the food we eat. It's how we get to work. It's where we work. All of these things comprise sustainability, uh, as is stormwater management, the example that you gave previously. Okay, so the department you work for is responsible for all of the renewable energy efforts in the city. Metro has a directive that all energy used in its building is renewable by 2041. That's pretty soon. What's the plan to get there? 
Well, uh, we have a few strategies. We are creating partnerships. We're looking at financing deals of getting as much solar on our buildings as possible, as well as creating off-site partnerships to get the renewable energy certificates, RECs, um, that certify that our energy is green and renewable. Well, how are we doing on that front? Well, we, considering we just started, because we had a bill passed, which was 2019-1600, uh, passed in 2019, um, we have a stair-step approach. So you can imagine that, uh, I, I'm sure you can appreciate, it takes a lot of doing to get our ducks in a row, because putting renewable energy on top of buildings is not a small task, nor is it a small ask of finances. Um so getting these ducks in a row takes a while. Uh, we are currently a little bit behind, uh, but considering the plans we have, um, we will jump up in a stair-step approach. So we will be able to gain the ground that we are behind on currently. Okay, so you're taking this stair-step approach, but tell me, how do you measure progress? What criterion do you use to track it? Well, we start, first we start with our energy consumption. So say we're talking about just one building or just your home. So to make things simpler, say your home consumes, say, 2,000 kilowatt hours of energy per month. And that's the amount we need to offset. You can do it primarily through two ways. One is through energy efficiency, and the second is through renewable energy. Energy efficiency is more cost effective than renewable energy energy, we are doing both. We are doing energy efficiency and um, renewable energy uh, and uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy. So we cut down how much we need and it's a percentage of what we consume is what your offset is. That's what the metric is. Okay. Now, Millie, tell us more about the Nashville Youth Climate Summit. What was it like? It was really interesting to see the diversity and the amount of kids that came from all across Nashville. Um, we had kids from Antioch and lots of people from MLK and Hume Fog, especially. Um, there was different workshops that you could pick that you picked in the morning and you would do those later in the day after a panel with a bunch of climate experts and the mayor, Mayor Cooper. And so the ones that I picked was the mending and repurposing workshops. So that was like taking a piece of fabric that had a hole in it and making it into a fun design and something like that. Hmm. And then repurposing, taking old t-shirts, making it into something new, like a tote bag is what we did. Um, and I really enjoyed those specifically, but they also had things like uh, urban transportation maps where it just kind of showed the hot spots for where we're using energy and where we can shift it around. It was a really interesting thing, and there's a lot of different options, um, but I personally chose the more sustainable fashion side of things because that is something I'm very interested in. Okay, so what got you interested in in the sustainability of fashion in regards to climate change? So I've been seeing like I've been I've always been interested in like how things are made and done and 
there's so many issues intertwined with the fashion industry. So there's like, you know, the factory labor conditions and everything with that, as well as the wastefulness of the consumerism um, around buying clothes. And so I find that sustainable fashion is a really nice intersection because I like learning how to sew. My grandma has been sewing things for me my whole life. Um, it's something I'm really interested in learning more about and getting better at. And so combining that with the sustainability that I know is important and seeing how you can make things so tailored to your size and have them fit you is just, it's very interesting. It's really cool. And now, tell me, have you always been interested in climate change? I I would say so. Um, I, I love gardening. I've been gardening with my dad my whole life on like weekends. It's mm. something that it's always been a part of my life and being part of nature. I mean, hikes, I've always been outside <laughs> mm -hmm. and being outside amazing. And it's connecting you to nature, which is so important. And it's so interesting to see it fleeting and see people caring about it less because they haven't been a part of it. And I think that's unfortunate. <laughs> now talk to me real quick about the conversations you have with your peers. A lot of people are, like you said, they may be caring about climate change a little bit less, but what kind of conversations do you have with your peers, other high school students about sustainability and the future? Yeah, I feel like there isn't much information about the progress that we're making. It's more so of a climate doom that we hear where it's, there's no hope there's no way we're too far in and there are parts of that that are true and but I don't think that the scare tactic is something that is really motivating people to try and make change um because people care about they're like yeah I care that there's like trash on the ground but it's kind of harder for them to see the bigger picture of when the ocean levels rise, the communities most affected are going to be the ones who have the least resources and kind of seeing how the intersectionality of it all comes together. It's something that's hard to grasp and there isn't much teaching about the methods that we are using mm. and the new technologies that are coming into use and the things we can do on a smaller scale, going into bigger scales in activism. If you're just tuning yeah. in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about climate change in Middle Tennessee and what the city can do to adapt. Is climate change a concern for you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Dodd Galbraith is a professor and director of the Institute of Sustainable Practice at Lipscomb University. Dodd, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. I'm honored. Glad to. So what are some of the things that you teach your students? Oh, you know, much of what we've already heard, you know, it, we we basically try to meet students where they are. So we we get students from a variety of backgrounds. Uh, about half of our students come from business training or, or business careers. Uh, about 15 to 20 percent of our students come from manufacturing or consulting 
Um, less than 10% of our students come to us with an environmental background, a traditional environmental background, or even an environmental degree. Hmm. And what that tells us is that's actually encouraging. That's exactly the kind of disciplines and professions that we want to green up, that we want to add sustainability to, because the environmental professionals have already been trained in that area. So our first goal is to um, ground everyone in this 360-degree uh, definition of sustainability like we heard earlier from our first guest, and then to help them specialize in something like energy or buildings or food systems or water systems and so forth. What are some of your students, what are some of their biggest concerns when it comes to sustainability and the environment? You know, it, it, it really varies. Um, you know, sometimes they're, they're very focused on climate change. So a lot of times they're just focused on uh, making it in life, you know, being successful. Uh, I'd say they all share a common interest in a meaningful career, having an impact. And sustainability is kind of the, the uh, challenge of our generation. Every generation gets something like this. And, and in, so far in history, every generation has met the challenge. And so they often come to it with a lot of energy and excitement and hope. Tell me, you mentioned this, what does the greening up of your students, what does that entail? Oh, yeah. It, it Basically, you know, when I get an industrial engineer, you know, a lot of industrial engineers are trained to manufacture things that are not necessarily good for the planet. Mm -hmm. you know? So greening them up means we're trying to help them uh, uh, recycle all of the waste from the industrial manufacturing process and make sure all of it gets upcycled, added in value, uh, to make sure they're not picking materials or resources that are being drained, that we don't have a, an, a regenerative supply of. Maybe we have a, uh, uh, like in the case of oil and coal, we're using something that we're going to run out of one day, and that's also creating climate change. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to give them new glasses to see the world. We're trying to give them new skills, and we're also trying to give them a specialty where they can drill down into a problem and create more hope. So you're not really trying to redirect them to becoming environmentalists then, right? No, it's it's uh, we're trying to get them to respect all aspects of society. I mean, uh, you know, our cell phones came from a business sector that uh, uh, put the power of a computer in our pocket. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to respect businesses. And so some of our uh, more environmentally focused students might think business is the bad guy. But business is actually the mechanism for delivering something efficiently and, and affordably and, and optimally and, and effectively. So we, we also take our business students, we help them understand that science is not that uh, subject that scared them to death when they were in high school or college or mm -hmm. maybe they got a bad grade in. Uh, one of the first things we do is we put them in an earth science class and we help them understand that the planet is the source of innovation, the source of inspiration. Solar panels, for example, uh, sort of copy photosynthesis, you know, pulling energy out of, out of light. Uh, and uh, the thermal mass of the of geology, storing heat in rock, is the same concept we use when we're trying to design an energy efficient building. So we show them a perspective that maybe they haven't considered before. You know, I'm wondering. I'm I'm curious about some of the biggest challenges that we're facing as a city when it comes to meeting our sustainability goals. Vasu, what are some of those challenges? Um. There are infrastructural challenges for us in energy. Uh, the best thing that can happen is if our utility is already green or is being pushed by the state to be green. One of our challenges for energy is that our utility has a, a low percentage of renewables, so we can't depend on that. We have to create our own solutions. Every time we create our own solutions, it takes longer and we're reinventing the wheel. 
What role um, does the state government have in all of this? Well, the state government, well, our, our utility, the TBA, is a federally owned utility. It's not necessarily a state um, utility. But uh, that said, there is some um, influence that le- local legislature, state legislature can have on utilities, um, which uh, which the state of Tennessee, Tennessee potentially could um, employ, um, which it traditionally has not. So how is that holding us back? Well, take the compare, uh, let me compare it with California and Hawaii, for instance. The, the, these states have mandated that their utilities have to be 100% renewable in short order. And the utilities are complying. Or they can be a state-run u- utility, or if it's a local, uh, it's a government-owned utility, um, then they can uh, convert their grid to renewable themselves, so the end user doesn't have to. No. And when a utility does that, they achieve economies of scale, which end use, we are a large customer, but say we're talking about your home, you don't have as much purchase power as a city or a state does, or even a utility, which in this case will uh, will cover various states, not just a single state is that large. Mm-hmm. Now, Millie, we have a mayoral election coming up in less than two months. What do you want the next mayor to focus on in regards to climate change? I think a big part of climate change is making sure that it is available, like sustainability goals are available to all people. So I think transportation is a big part of that. And walkability is something that I've been very interested in recently and that's kind of the theory that the more you have access to things like a grocery store, a residential area, and office buildings all in the same area, then it's going to be a more thriving community. Um, And I think that's really important to have a better transportation system that if I was needing to get to the other side of Nashville, I could do that in under an hour because I haven't had a car. And so needing to get around without having access to a car is very difficult. And it's something that is overlooked a lot of the times because it's assumed that you have a car. And I think that's a big issue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, Dodd, you worked with the city and the state government, and we know that these two entities have, let's just say, not played well together lately. What can be done to get both on the same page? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that I had a conversation recently with some local citizens who were uh, talking about the different candidates and that their ideal candidate for, for mayor was someone who can approach state government collaboratively and could listen to the state's perspective and, in turn, catalyze the state to listen to Metro's perspective. At, you know, the age that we live in today is is typical of the the, cha- the biggest challenge we have with sustainability, and that's getting everyone to kind of see it the same way mm-hmm. and everyone to kind of focus on a common path that we can all work towards like we did in World War II. The mobilization happened really, really fast because there was this common concern and a common threat, but we're still debating the common threat. We're mm-hmm. still kind of debating the common concern, and, and that's bleeding into these 
these intergovernmental relationships as well. You've got a party that's predominant in state government that maybe doesn't so much believe in climate change. You have a party that kind of predominates in metro government that does believe in climate change and is doing something about it. And until we sit down together and work it out, uh, we're not going to make much progress. Now, Millie, you are clearly interested in protecting the environment, and Vasu and Dodd have been working on sustainability for a long time. Do you have any questions for them? I would be interested in hearing how the newer generation coming into different fields of work, how is that impacting the work that's being done? Dodd? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was just thinking this earlier when you, you were asking me about the, you know, how do we green up uh, uh, an individual? Uh, we had a gentleman who came to us from Nissan who was building traditional gasoline-operated cars. He had begged his employer to let him work at least in the battery manufacturing line for the Leaf. This was several years ago. Uh, he wasn't getting much uh, interest in that, so he came to our graduate program. He got a master's degree in in sustainability. Uh, he went back to Nissan. They still wouldn't let him work on it. So he says, well, I'll go to the design studio in Detroit. He went to Detroit. They wouldn't really let him work on it there. Hmm. They had this limited perspective about gas-operated cars versus electric cars in those days. So then he took a job at Tesla, and now he's working at Rivian. So it, uh, that tells me that you really kind of have to make your own future and your own path in this world. And that's been true, I think, of all human history. We look to innovators, we look to individuals, we look to leaders. And uh, you multiply that across the landscape, uh, uh, and you're going to see a lot more results. And I, I'm very excited by what I hear in this conversation today. Millie, how's that feel? I think that was a, I, I really appreciate that answer. I think it's, I, I do hope that I can be someone who goes and follows what I want to do and that I don't have too many things blocking me from doing that. I have a strong feeling that you're going to be able to make it happen. Millie Peterson is a rising high school junior who participated in the Nashville Youth Climate Summit. Millie, thank you so much for being with us today and enjoy your summer vacation. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Dodd Galbraith and Vasu Primlani will stay with us through the break. When we come back, we'll explore what we can do, that's you and me, to help make our city more sustainable. Are you taking efforts to live a more sustainable life? Tell us about it by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. As we move forward into an uncertain future in regards to climate change, it is important to think about how we can adapt. But adaptation has its limits, and it won't be enough. We also need to live more sustainably. It's going to take everyone, and that includes individual Nashvilleans. So, what can we do together? For more on that, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Jacqueline Matupi is the Director of Social Innovation at the Wondery at Vanderbilt University. Jacqueline, thank you for being with us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. It's a supreme honor. Really appreciate you being here. Now, for people who may be unfamiliar with the Wondery, briefly tell us how the Wondery is approaching climate change. 
Yeah, the Wondery is really kind of the front door to Vanderbilt University. It's six years young. It has four practice areas, entrepreneurship, innovation, design, research, making and design, and social innovation. Social innovation is a process of um, developing and, int- and implementing ideas, uh, strategies, ways to um, address in different ways uh, social and environmental um, issues and complex um, thing, uh issues that we face today. And so I think the Wondery, those four practice areas, that the intersection of that is innovation. And a lot of social innovations programming addresses climate change. And so we've got programming like the Climate Innovation Accelerator uh, that engages minority small businesses and nonprofits to identify a new climate innovation within their mission or their business to be able to be more climate ready and, and future fit. Now, you said it's the front door of Vanderbilt University. So Vanderbilt has taken this on as, so to say, its lead charge? Uh, I, I wouldn't say lead charge, but I would say Vanderbilt, or the Wondery serves as the front door to Vanderbilt. And we serve in, in lots of different ways, those four practice areas in innovation and, and social innovation. Um, I'm about a year and a half into my time there. And so my background is sustainability. I came from the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation and then served as the director of sustainability at Hands On Nashville prior to that. So uh, very, very entrenched in community and sustainability. And so the Wondery invested in in hiring someone that specializes in that and could build and design programming to address climate change. Okay, so given your experience, tell us what are some of the biggest climate threats we're facing right now? Um, Um, I I would say to focus on um, the climate action plan that Mayor Cooper's sustainability uh, committee recently authored that I served on, um, we really focused on five pillars. We focused on energy, we focused on water, natural resources, and, and the built environment, and created recommendations for the city to act on. And so those recommendations are a great ready-made roadmap that citizens and businesses and academia alike can, can really rally around and, and make um, measurable change. Now, I understand those recommendations, like you said, can help make this change, but a lot of different departments in metro government. How coordinated are the city's different departments? How coordinated are they in terms of implementing a robust sustainability plan? Um, well, I want to give kudos where kudos is deserved. Uh, the Chief, Chief Resiliency Officer, uh, Dr. Kendra Apowitz, is super able. Um, Former guest to- of the show. Former guest of the of the show to lead that charge um, and um, working with Kendra's team right now to have a three part workshop to convene uh, 11, uh, 12 of the departments to look at what does resilience mean to them? How can they embed resilience into their operations? And so it's not a standalone effort, but it's actually a part of their their operations. And so we are convening them and looking at how do we ideate a toolkit that would be used and implemented by the end users and seeking their input to better design a toolkit that serves them. Okay. Now, Vasu Primlani and Dodd Galbraith are still with us. Vasu, you're working on making the city's energy use all renewable by 2041. What are other departments doing to increase sustainability? Well, we have uh, some of our departments have taken up composting as well. Um, And 
with Metro Water Services, they are really, um, really focusing on being a, a, a net zero building. Um, we're getting a lot of our build, new buildings, our libraries being LEED certified. So that cuts down the energy uh, consumption, as well as, of course, pushing the uh, renewable um, energy on there. So these are primarily the the three prongs um, that we see uh, with leading for energy, for energy efficiency and renewables are the two strongest ones. For um, as well, uh, there's, sorry, there's one more thing in transportation. We also have a mandate to make our fleet electric. So we have had an influx of electric vehicles come in, which cuts down our emissions by about um, 95, 96% for electric vehicle. When is that, when is that new fleet going to be fully operational? We, um, we, we have a timeline for that as well. Um, um, I don't know the latest numbers, but we have a timeline for that um, as well. I'll have to look that up. Ooh. But in definitely in the next uh, decade, okay, or, now, or so. Now, now, Dodd, when some people think about climate change and you know moving to a sustainable lifestyle, they often claim it's too heavy of a lift that they can't afford to make those changes. How do you respond to that? Well, it's largely true i mean you know a few years ago i did a i did one of those carbon footprint analysis that you can do online you know for myself and my family before i started before i put solar panels on my home before i started driving an electric car and i think i was using something like four and a half planets you know in my footprint wow when i changed my lifestyle the best i've been able to get it down to is about 2.3 planets is is the rough analysis and that i started asking myself in in the my peers and experts in this field who, who study various aspects of, of this carbon-rich economy that, that we live in, you know, what's the real problem? And it, they said it's really the societal interconnections uh, and the networks of energy use and commerce that have kind of tied us all in this big knot together. And so just like in, uh, as I referred to earlier, the mobilization that we had to do for World War II, we're going to have to have a massive societal mobilization because individually there are limits to what we can do. Um, it's going to take society to step in and do it. And I've, I just want to share a couple of good news. Uh, the U.S. Energy Agency just reported this year that renewable generation surpassed coal and nuclear power in the U.S. electric power sector in 2022. And um, they're predicting that more than half of new U.S. electric generating capacity in 2023 will be solar. So this mobilization has started. It's beginning to gain steam. Uh, but our, our biggest challenge is going to be replacing this huge baseload of fossil fuel energy mm -hmm. uh, that is um, uh, every day churning out electrons for society. And that's going to be the hardest hill to overcome. But Human history shows we've done that. We, we've overcome much worse hurdles than this, and we just got to stay focused on it. I'm, I'm interested in two things here. The time that it's going to take, like it's wonderful. That's good news that yeah. you just reported. But is that a little bit too late? And also how we mobilize people. Yes, we had a great mobilization effort in World War II, but unfortunately that was caused by a horrific attack. That's right. Are we going to have to wait? I'm just thinking about human yeah. nature. Yeah. Are we going to have to wait for something truly horrible to happen before we get into action. Yeah, I think we already have. I mean, you can look at Hurricane Katrina. 
uh, you know, that mobilized Walmart into getting in the sustainability game because they saw their supply chains uh, uh, altered significantly. We've seen in Nashville people from Oregon and California moving here, investing in property, you know, uh, uh, offering prices that are two or three times higher in rural areas uh, where my stepfather was a mayor in Gainesboro, Tennessee. They're seeing people offer three times the previous property value uh, from folks who are coming from areas that have extremely high real estate prices and now have fires and now have landslides and now have floods. And so we're already seeing this migration away from these sort of uh, spot disasters that are occurring. Mm-hmm. And, I, and unfortunately, there's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere already. Uh, that's going to stay there. Uh, so our, our, our best chance is just to slow down the movement towards the edge of the cliff, so to speak. We, we've got to reduce our speed. And in the process, we have to turn the steering wheel as well. All right. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about efforts that the city and individual Nashvillians can take to make our city more sustainable. Send us your thoughts at This Is Nashville, please. Now, Vasu, what can what can we as individuals do to help with climate change? Give us some tips that myself and other listeners out there can do at home. Um, There are actually a million, right about a million things we can do right now as individuals. Um, One of the biggest things is what's on our plate. Um, So there have been a lot of studies as to how much methane uh, traditional agriculture and traditional the American diet uh, creates. So as close as we can get to a plant-based diet, if you remember the trophic levels, you use the least amount of energy at the lowest levels, which is a plant-based diet. Um, so there are lots of films on it as well. There's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan got together and made a film recently on that um, as well. So that's one, a change what you eat. Second, if you don't want to go for an electric vehicle, that's fine. You can do energy efficient driving, uh, which will immediately cut down your emissions by about 20%. You can do that right away. Um, Using less water. In the house, there is an energy water nexus. So the less water you use, the less energy you use. Um, There is a free energy audit provided by the TVA for your home. Um, Get that done. And very cheaply, you can cut down your energy bill and your emissions. Um, so these are a few things that you can do right away, grow your own food. They're just right about a million things if you wish to. And, and what you said earlier was, you know, people say we can't afford to. Uh, I would say we can't afford not to. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we, we really can't do this alone as individuals. It's going to take cooperation from businesses. Right. I think the business community really has to get in. How can we encourage or influence the business community to take action and become more sustainable? Jacqueline? Yeah, we need all hands on deck. Um, I think that really was the vision for the Climate Innovation Accelerator is how do we engage um, these recommendations that were in this this report I mentioned uh, really was viable by businesses that had a sustainability team on board and can implement carbon neutral goals. But looking at that, I was curious, how might we also engage small businesses? 70% of National Business Chamber is small businesses. It's Main Street. Uh, And so the accelerator uh, engages exclusively small businesses that don't have directors of sustainability to teach them no-cost, low-cost measures that they can immediately act on. Engaging students uh, in serving in all disciplines, whatever major they are, they can serve um, as a consultant 
and and then engage corporations like Nissan um, and and Cummins and Amazon and TVA and the mentors that served in the accelerator provided that expertise and provided double impact both to the student team and then also to the clients, the small businesses and nonprofits to teach them um, and provide guidance and, and assistance. And so it was a really successful model that um, put those that weren't in the conversation and centered them and surrounded them with resources. You know, I'm interested about in biz- big businesses like Amazon, and we have an enormous healthcare industry here. They have resources. They mm-hmm. have the finances to kind of implement and make great change right now. What? How can they be influenced to help out the public sector with these work? I think public-private partnerships are are how we move the needle. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years in the public sector and being downstream from the problem and trying to um, get the right people in the room at the right time to have uh, an agenda that we all care about. And so um, we're, we're doing that again here, being upstream from the problem in academia and being able to ideate um, in innovative solutions is what I aim to do here at The Wondery. You know, a lot of people see this fight as something that we can't win and in a sense have given up hope. I think Millie referred to that a little bit. I really love to hear a motivational pep talk from everybody, <laughs> you know, so for anyone who has doubts about, you know, what we have to do to try to adapt to creating a sustainable city, how can we do that? Dodd, let's start with you first. What's a motivational pep talk for the people? Well, I, you know, I just got back from Austin, Texas, you know, where I took graduate students to see, you know, uh, assisted housing. Uh, nine different centers uh, to help people with their rents and to, to give children some additional uh, learning um, uh, focus within within the uh, apartment complex where they live. And this nonprofit owns a megawatt of solar. Uh, I, I, next week, I'm going to be in New England with students looking at uh, communities that are almost completely off the grid, going to Montpelier, which is a city that's 100% renewable energy electrified. We, we've already done it. We just haven't done it at scale yet. And I, I, I think leaders, if we look back at, at, again, at the World War II analogy, our leaders were honest with us. They told us there are going to be sacrifices, there are going to be challenges, and there's probably even going to be some damage, right? Europe suffered enormous damage before mm-hmm. we figured out how to win that war. But look at it today. You know, human history shows that we always overcome it but it always happens through honesty, focus, and collaboration and, Vas- mo- and mobilization at scale. Mm-hmm. Vasu, what's your pep talk? Well, going off of his analogy of steering and stuff, there's a, a Chinese saying that says, if you don't change the direction in which you're going, you'll likely end up where you're headed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, the, the only thing that works in solving problems is care, is is love, um, and positive energy. So um, let's perhaps, if you can muster with a with an atmosphere of joy, putting your best foot forward, and I'd say don't take small steps, take large steps. Because we are at the 11th hour, even 11.5 hour, fine. Do the best you can. Put your best foot forward. We're all in it together. We're all here to support you, us, our families. You, everyone who's listening is my direct family. 
you're my family, I care about you. This is why we do the work we do as environmentalists, because we care about not just people, we care about the trees, we care about the air, we care about the water and everything that lives in the water. So we care, we love a lot. And I would invite you to join us. And it's not heavy, we'll make it light. We'll make it light. It's not heavy, let's put our best foot forward with the greatest love and the greatest joy we can muster. Mm. Thank you for that. Now, Jacqueline, what's your pep talk to any of our, our older citizens and Nashvillians who feel like they're too old, they're too out of touch, too out of place to make an impact? I would encourage them to hang out on Vanderbilt's campus for a week <laughs> uh, and hang out with the younger generation who are so full of hope and curiosity and wonder and awe, it's its really inspiring to be around. I think as we get older, we get in this place of knowing. I've been here before, I'm jaded, I, I'm full of knowledge. And so to really lean into curiosity and ask more questions, I think will get us to a place where we where we need to be. And so how might we, or tell me more, or questions I embrace on the daily that gets me to new conversations. I think too, um, you know, for the younger generation, finding purpose is gonna get you further than saying, I wanna be a lawyer, or I wanna be this certain a profession because purpose transcends all sectors mm -hmm. um, and, and goes beyond your job title. And that has always been my North Star is purpose. Um, and so I think embracing curiosity and purpose um, is going to change the mindset it's necessary. Gonna, it's yeah. going to take a lift from all of us, sacrifices and achievements from everybody, from the faith community to what people would say, the agnostics or the non-believers. But it's going to be something for all of us. I want to thank you so much, everyone, for being here. I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. My guests were Jacqueline Mutupi. She is the Director of Social Innovation at The Wondery at Vanderbilt University. Dodd Galbraith is a professor and director of the Institute of Sustainable Practice at Lipscomb University. And Vasu Primlani is the Sustainable Project Manager for Metro's Nashville Department of General Services. Again, thanks to you all for being here with us today. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Steve Harouche and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Catherine Price and Caroline Eggers. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't and here. You can tweet us at This Is Nashville or find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other and the planet as well. Hey.